Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Richard, yes, maybe this is a really silly question, but how busy are you at the moment? I would consider myself to be very hard-pressed for time, partly because we've got a book out at the moment, so I've been on book talk. I've also been places doing that. Partly because we have the great pleasure of meeting and doing our rabbit hole detectives. Partly also because I've got box blight and the box hedges in my garden have died. And so Ben and the garden, the garden, my gardener guy, he's doing all the work. So there's a lot happening. Plus I'm writing book three in the series. So I consider myself to be quite busy. How about you, Charles? Well, I've kept box blight at bay but I have just finished writing a, a book that's taken me four or five years and I'm doing this you know all of us have a you know how much there is after you've finished a book and also the podcast and all sorts of things back at home. So would it be fair to say that if somebody found a way to deliver all the day's news to you in a single five minute source created read from the best of the world's media would that be helpful? Do you mean a curated source in an easily digestible form <laughs> of all the headline-making news in the world. Yeah, so you don't have to go out and find it yourself, but you could just get it to you. Of would that be useful? Would. I'd love it. If possible. Yes. Well, luckily, somebody's actually found a way of doing just uh -huh. that. Do and tell. it's called The Knowledge. And The Knowledge is a free daily newsletter, and it makes the news manageable. Fill me up with knowledge. Where <laughs> so, would you find it? So you just have to sign up. It's very easy. Excellent. www.thenowledge.com forward slash rabbit hole. Well, that's good to know. Brought to you by John Connell, founder of The Week. And that gives you five minutes daily news. And that's it. The Knowledge makes news manageable. Folding Pocket. This week's episode is brought to you by Babbel. Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat German, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. 
Hello again, rabbit holers. Hello, Kat. Hello, Kat. Oh, nice to be back in the studio again. Yes, yes, it is. Air-conditioned splend. It's not air-conditioned. No, it's not really. It's, it's, it's a little hot. muggy. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. fine. I know it keeps you. I mean, I think it, if we were too comfortable, we wouldn't be thinking. Yes. Well, it's like the exactly. Bayreuth principle, isn't it? At Bayreuth, the Opera House, there, the seats are unbelievably uncomfortable. No danger of anyone dropping off, even in Gotterdammerum, <laughs> because it's so uncomfortable you simply couldn't do it. Yeah. And no air conditioning either. So it's 100 degrees. Right and is there a dress code? Total dress code. So it's you either wear either evening dress or national dress. Oh, great. It's a great that. excuse to be a Bavarian. Oh. Sure. Because they literally come in lederhosen. With <laughs> yeah. their great red legs just exposed for everyone. Anyway. But it is unbelievably uncomfortable. And they lock you in. So you go and you sit down and then first da, 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 and you hear this clunk of the locks and the attendants lock you into your room because no one's going anywhere and you're not going to sleep. Serious. Right. That sounds really horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Would you voluntarily do that? Yeah. I don't, don't really like Wagner. It's a long evening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, no, I think I'd rather sit here and do this instead. Have a natter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Shall we just go straight into our topics this uh, week? Absolutely delighted yes. to. So, Charles, you're going to be starting us off this week with a subject that's quite personal to you, really. So you're going to be talking about defamation. I read history at university, and I really wish I'd done law because it would have been very handy given the number <laughs> of defamation cases I've sort of been involved in. But anyway, it's quite topical, really, because there's been some absolutely massive defamation payouts recently. The two headline ones, both in America, where Fox News had to stump up $787 million in a settlement with Dominion Voting Systems for knowingly yeah. undermining the election results of the last presidential election in the US. And then Alex Jones, a commentator who claimed that Sandy Hook massacre of those poor children didn't happen and that it was a, a hoax and a plot to seize American guns. There were three cases, and the first one that found against him, he was told to pay $965 million. Really? Wow. But it's a fascinating thing, because in America, of course, you know, the First Amendment's about free speech, and there's a sort of assumption that you're going to lean that way, that in America you should have the freedom to say what you really want. And one of the underlying principles of defamation came in a case in 1964, when the New York Times was sued by a man called Sullivan, who was the in charge of law in Montgomery, Alabama. And this is at the time where the civil rights movement is getting some momentum. And the New York Times wrote about what life was like for the oppressed people of Montgomery, Alabama. And they made some errors. And L.B. Sullivan, the Montgomery Police Commissioner, sued the New York Times, thinking he was going to win because they had got it wrong and he came out of it very badly. But the New York Times was protected because you had to not just prove that it was wrong and upsetting, you had to have published with knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. So this meant that the media in America, for instance, could make honest mistakes, as it were. An underlying principle now today is very much that truth is a fair defense against being sued for defamation and also opinion. Up until 2013, the British law courts were seen to be heavily in favor of the plaintiff in libel cases. And there was a, a lot of libel tourism until the laws were changed then, which again allowed media outlets to have opinions, not just rigidly have the truth. I don't understand libel tourism. Presumably an offense is tried in the jurisdiction the offense is committed. 
But given the nature of media, uh, even if, say it was in a United States newspaper, you could find a newsstand in London where that paper was available. So you could choose that. where you are. Mm. The Americans, on the other hand, don't allow it the other way around. They won't recognize it. So say somebody found against an American in America in London, that doesn't wash it as, as it does in some countries. Going back into the history of it, what struck me most about this general topic was how much the laws of defamation reflect society. So the more turbulent society was, I'm talking way back in the Middle Ages, the more rigidly the king or the powers that be would see to it that people were held to account. Because really, the earliest form in the Middle Ages of defamation that I can see is something that shook up the state or the monarchy. And there's a sort of uh, idea that it was the scandal of magnates, of great men, that if you defame them, you are picking open the, the sort of thread of society and you were held to account. And you can see that there are various points in English history in particular where libel laws become more onerous. Up until about 400 years ago, it was very much a church matter. It wasn't seen as a king's court. You could sue locally in a manorial court, say, but it was really a, a church matter. And there were some quotes from the Bible which people looked to as explaining why it should be a, a church matter. Eighth and tenth verses, the epistle of Jude, a condemnation is made of those that despise rulers and speak evil of those that be in authority, as well as those who simply speak evil of those things they know not. And in Exodus, in the 22nd chapter, they say, thou shalt not rail of the judges, nor speak evil of the ruler of the people. So it was really a way of suppressing people who are going to undo society. You can go further back, Kat, into sort of your area of expertise, and in the, the dooms of Alfred the Great, if anyone utters a public slander, it said, he shall make amends on no lighter terms than the excision of his tongue. Ooh, so that's yeah. quite punchy. That's useful. Um, and also, I love this. This is a sort of reference to presidential contenders now. In 1275, it was condemned if you spread false news, oh. uh, almost fake news. Yeah. I, I wish it was. That came into being because before 1275, when that became part of English law, there'd been all sorts of turbulence and civil war in England. And they just wanted to stop people spreading things that were anti the crown. And it was a very good way of doing it. It became a, a very difficult balance, really. Defamation sat somewhere in English law between just saying nasty things and treason. If you chose to go up against the king himself, then it really was reaching into treason. And so the punishment became hanging, drawing and quartering, that terrible execution that we've touched on before, which is beyond belief, really, but you're basically turned into kit form and uh, hung up around London. So an offence of just being horrid to the sovereign. Yes, and that doesn't matter if it was true or not. That still exists in some places. I mean, in Thailand, you know, if you say something against the king, that is a serious crime. They get very upset. Very upset. Although I believe the monarchy in Thailand has reached a, a less elevated state than it was even 20 years ago, to have libeled the late king or defamed him. Or even just to have said something disobliging. Yeah, well, saying, that's very interesting you say that, because I was about to distinguish. So defamation, as many of the listeners will know, falls into two camps. There's libel, which is written, yeah. mm -hmm. and then there's slander, which is essentially said. And slander was always throughout history seen as the lesser of the evil. And libel laws obviously only really became relevant once the printing presses started to get going. Interestingly, up until James I's time, so really before the printing presses really got going, so he ruled 1603 to 25, 
his laws said that even if you said the truth, if it was considered damaging to somebody, you could be punished, which is an extraordinary concept for us now. You know, the idea that truth isn't a, a defender of somebody's right to say something. Or, and this is interesting, so I think of Richard Nixon, some of his defense from Watergate later on, was that the office made it true, that if, that if you say so, it is true. I think Donald Trump has moved in that direction. That he is that the office means that it is true, not the facts. Which is a terrifying concept. Isn't it? <laughs> At least there's sort of issue of you know who decides what that truth is. That an office can be the, yeah. the the fountain, the authority, rather yeah. than the facts in the world. Yeah. yeah, that's quite terrifying. Well, one of the most famous libels from British history took place in 1485 when the Tudors came to power and they were, it was, you know, they had a tenuous hole to start with. This is Richard III. So just before he bowed out, he and his three leading counsellors were mocked in a poem written by somebody called William Collingbourne. And the three ministers were called Catesby, Ratcliffe and Lovell. And Collingbourne played with their names and wrote this just one line. And it said, the cat, which is Catesby, the rat, which is Ratcliffe, and Lovell, our dog, ruleth all England under a hog. And that was Richard III's, one of his symbols was a, a wild boar. And this was uh, considered so unbelievably dangerous as a libel during the Wars of the Roses that he was given a particularly appalling exit from the world. What happened? Well, it was all that hanging, drawing and quartering. But uh, there is no worse execution in English history than that. Mm. The first common law defamation case took place in 1507. And it was sort of understood after this point that words could have an impact on the honor of a man as much as or even more than a physical attack. This is the first time that became a, a concept. And the floodgates opened in the 1550s and 60s, where you could seek special and real damages. But you couldn't just go for somebody because they said something appalling about you. If it was clearly just a joke, that was dismissed. And also, if there were ambiguous words in the alleged libel, the court would find on the side of the kinder interpretation. So it was trying to stop everyone going for it. Yeah. They were quite structured at this time, the libels. Mary, Queen of Scots was a very controversial figure in Scotland in the mid-16th century. And people composed these libels against her. We've got two that are still with us that were 300 lines long, using very convoluted allegory, bringing in rhetorical figures who would ask questions which resulted in answers that were devastating for the person being libeled. And I would say they were works of art in a way, this sort of idea of doing it. But gradually, you end up in 1660 with the Stuart Restoration with a, a more structured view in law as to what constituted defamation and what, you know, libel versus slander. And there were even lower ecclesiastical courts, which were known as bawdy courts, where you could try and sue people for calling you names. So it all got a bit out of control, really. And you start after that with the 18th century was a, a time where this all kicked off in a big way. And uh, in 1843, as we've seen in so many of our episodes, things get really codified in the 1840s. And we see there's a libel act, which really comes down on the side more and more of the newspaper in question. So if a newspaper is sued for libel after 1843, if it can say, there was no malice or neglect in what we did, we just made a mistake. And here's some money we're going to put into court that was going to see off the plaintiff. 
So England's always sort of led the way in some of this. It's, it's been a place where people have really chanced their arm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? The trade-off between, on the one hand, trying to preserve the quite understandable wish of someone not to be defamed, on the other hand, to preserve also the freedom of the press. And it's a constant mm. one, isn't it? It is. And I, what's so interesting, I, I, I want to look now at cases which have just been an absolute disaster for the people who've initiated them. Yeah. So the longest libel case was about 20 odd years ago, where McDonald's took on an unemployed postman and a part-time bar worker who made claims through London's Greenpeace against McDonald's, their working practices, and of course, animal husbandry, etc. And they lost far more than the time and expense of, of the case. In fact, technically, McDonald's won the case with caveats, but the disaster in terms of PR, but we can go back Further, you know, to 1878, there was a fascinating case because it's to do with criticism. We've all had books where not all the criticism has been wonderful. You remember it forever. Mm. <laughs> well, I know. Yeah. Sorry, some of us have. Um, but the British-based American artist James Abbott McNeil Whistler received an unbelievably unpleasant bit of criticism from the art critic John Ruskin, who essentially said that one of his pieces of work, called it was Nocturne in Black and Gold, was ridiculous. He was asking 200 guineas for the piece, and Ruskin said, well, it's absurd, it's a bad piece, and it took him two days to make. But Whistler's riposte, you know, was so brilliant in the court case that probably swung the case. And when he was asked, how can you possibly think that two days of your work was worth 200 guineas? He gave the famous reply that it's not for two days work, but the knowledge of a lifetime. Well, yeah. quite right. Too. Spot on. Yeah. Very good. But both men were destroyed by the case. In fact, Whistler lost his case and was awarded a farthing, but the costs took him down. He was bankrupted. Ruskin went to pieces mentally, lost his chair at Oxford, and died um, after a mental collapse. But you've got some personal experience of, of these cases, haven't you, Charles? Some, personally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a little bit. World I've, record for defamation things. Yeah, I know being litigious isn't a good thing. So I've won 14 libel cases. Yeah. But I have avoided, I have decided not to go for probably 1,400. You know, it's quite an interesting thing. You get a reputation for going for it. What's interesting is how everything's on the line. I mean, it's an incredibly expensive, stressful process. I've only ever gone for those cases where I really can't see a judge not finding for me. Because you think the evidence is just knocked down. Yeah, but it's very hard. It's a tough old business. You're up against some not very nice people. With deep pockets. Well, they've got endless pockets, as far as I can see. Most of them are insured. And what they want to do is send a message, double message. One is, which comes quietly to you, you really want to do this? Because we're just going to hit you harder next time. And the other one is, we can afford to draw this out for years if we want to. And what are you going to do about it? Mm. A cynic might think that there'll be elements in the British press, for example, that <laughs> conform to that no, stereotype. Really? I'm yes. sure you couldn't possibly comment. Right? No, there are. There are. That's where I've gone. I've never done it to, against a person. But um, yeah, the British tabloids, I'm talking about a long time ago when the tabloids were really appalling and had power, you know, where they were much more powerful than today and huge circulations. And sometimes you just wake up and you'd feel absolutely violated. And so that was yeah. the option, really. So is that I, the decision then? It's just sort of, it really felt worth it? Yeah, that's a very good question, Kat. Was it worth it? I mean, there's one case which was so ludicrous, accused me of some financial something, and I, I, that was a slam dunk. And I have to say, they folded and I did have a, an apology in the High Court, and that is really satisfying, because it wasn't just that article. And of course, they don't mean the apology, I get that. 
But going to the high court and seeing that they've recognized that this time they have really screwed up is validating because you sometimes think you're losing your reason. I mean, yeah. mm. you know, it's a long process. It's a stressful process. But I've never taken one on, which I wouldn't have been prepared to see all the way through. I've done it once and I wouldn't do it again for the stressful. And also I went into it thinking, well, it's so obvious, you know, yes. this yeah. is the, the no court could possibly find against me and indeed it didn't find against me what i didn't realize is what a long and protracted process it was it took years and years and years and the stress was and i remember the lawyer saying to me when i was saying well i think i'm going to do this he said if a mucker asked me for my watch i might fight them off if a lawyer said i'm going to see you for your watch i give him the watch <laughs> yeah that's very <laughs> that's good, good yes you don't find many poor libel lawyers i don't think what was your favorite fact well, I didn't know that the disastrous case for Oscar Wilde against the Marquess of Queensbury, that Oscar Wilde was the plaintiff. Yes. He sued the Marquess of Queensbury for accusing him of sodomy with his son. Sondomite. Sondomite. Posing as a sondomite. Sondomite. He got the word wrong. You're absolutely right. But we sort of know what he was trying to say. And the whole thing turned against him. Not only did he lose the case, but he was tripping along quite nicely. He had the court laughing at his brilliance as he went along. And then it came down to one moment where he was asked if he kissed one of the young men who, with whom he had admitted consorting. And Wilde, carried away by the moment, said, oh dear, no, he was unfortunately extremely ugly. I pitied him for it. So the court deduced that if he hadn't been ugly, he would have. So he hoisted himself on his own petard. It was a terrible moment. So I'm not saying favorite in that I approve of this, but it's very revealing of the dangers of this particular part of the law. And how hubris can come in. Hubris can whip everything from underneath you. And then he was prosecuted, wasn't he? For... He was. And then, as, as you touched on earlier, Kat, with your treadmill thing of many yes. episodes ago, I mean, he was in Reading Jail and it broke him. You know, his last words were... Nay. Either this wallpaper or I have got to go. <laughs> <laughs> the wallpaper won. The wallpaper won. Well, on that note, <laughs> let's move on to the next one. Thank you, Charles. On to you, Richard. Yes. And that's Polari. Polari. Also, thank you very much, Charles, for bringing up Oscar Wilde because that germane to the discussion. What is Polari? Well, it's not really a language, although some have claimed it. It's not really a dialect, although some have claimed it. But it's more an argo, a slang. And it's best known now as the language that was used by what we would call gay men in, let's say, Britain, for example, in the 1950s and the 60s. You must remember, after examples things like the Oscar Wilde trial in the 1890s, homosexuality was criminalised in what well, had been criminalised for a long time, but particularly by the Labuschere Amendment in Victorian England. The scandal of the Oscar Wilde case means that it was a, something that was disgraceful and shameful and awful. The penalties in law for various offences associated with it were very great. And the damage it would do to your reputation were you revealed to be someone who was gay. Of course, people were gay then as they were every in all periods of history and now. But what do you do if you belong to a minority that is at risk of prosecution, contumely? You develop a coded way of existence, don't you? Mm. And one of the ways you do that is through language. So Polari was used as a kind of language by gay men in which to identify other gay people, very useful. You would drop into your conversation a particular word, and if someone knew Polari too, they would know that you were on the same page, and that could lead to a fruitful discussion. You would also, I think, mark out linguistically a bit of territory of your own to give you a bit of solidarity, maybe a bit of pride, and also necessarily it would be something which other people didn't understand. 
I think Oscar Wilde, I mean, there's this myth about Oscar, I think it's a myth about Oscar Wilde that he was corrupted by Bosey. Lord Alfred Douglas, the son of the Marquis of Queensbury, came into his life and corrupted him. I think Oscar Wilde was having a pretty, what we would see as a gay life before that ever happened. But it was of necessity clandestine. But there's certain ways he uses languages which suggest to me that he was tuned into those sorts of codes. It really derived from all sorts of things. Cockney rhyming slang, there's a bit of that in it. Italian, there's a bit of that. A lot of Romany in it. Backchat was in it. And Thieves Argo was in it. Languages that tended to evolve, or dialects that tend to evolve around people who were, for some reason or another, needed to protect themselves in a hostile world or to code what they were doing. We know that it was very common in theatres, troubadours, minstrels, da da da. And then the form it arrived, its most developed form, perhaps in the 20th century, was often through the Merchant Navy, or the Merch, as it was known. The Merch, particularly P&O, interestingly, was a place where gay men could meet other gay men and have a right, lovely old time. I'm talking about this, I'm not actually sharing with you any of the... Bona Tavardi, a dolly old eek. I can crack that one, because I think I know that one. What was that? What does that mean? Good to see your lovely face. Exactly. Yeah. Bona was good, Varda <laughs> yes. was C, dolly yeah. was Britain, eek. Yes actually comes from reverse slang. Ecaf for face became oh, eek. Oh. There are, I arrived in London as a new gay, if you seem to have been a new boy in the gay world in 1980. I just caught the very end of the generation of gay men for whom that was a sort of daily experience. The Lady Pearl. The Lady Pearl was a Dr. Andorra, someone who was associated with the Bermondsey Docks, for example, because the Lady Pearl was fond of seaweed, seaweed being gentlemen associated with the maritime trades and the lady pearl his real name was paul actually but was always known as the lady pearl would stand around and could just speak in this coded language all the time hands were moles molly mitts legs were lallies all bona lallies varda the lallies look at the legs on that person a man was an omi a woman was a pelone a gay person was an omi pelone well, she went to chaffee some vogues that would steal some cigarettes, but to steal a cigarette. And I always remember at the end of the evening, if the Lady Pearl had not been fortunate to make a new friend, the Lady Pearl would go, Oof, no sprouts for the Lady Pearl. And that was the, <laughs> that was the end of the evening. No sprouts for That's the Lady brilliant. Pearl. That's brilliant. And it was a sort of everyday thing about it. Descri body descriptions were quite a big one. Carts, for example. A gentleman's attributes would be described as carts, boner carts or nanty carts. Nanty meant bad. Some words kind of got into bevy in Liverpool. Bavare was polari for a drink, and I think that obviously may come from some Italian thing, I think maybe through sailors, but bevy and bavare, I'm sure, are related. Clutch your pearls, it's lily law. So in the event of a police raid, clutch your pearls, and you hear that sometimes, don't you know, yes. mm. clutch your pearls. Naff is perhaps, the that's a polari word meaning bad. Mm. The princess royal famously once told someone to naff off. Yes, now, it's reported. I, yeah. I don't know if it's true or not, but if it is true, it's just a nice thought of the princess royal using <laughs> a polari word. I was reading the diary of my great-grandfather from just over 100 years ago, and it's amazing that you needed a language and how how furtive the whole thing was. So my great aunt, in that great rush to get married after the First World War, yeah. was married off to a suitable title chap in the county of Northamptonshire. And my great-grandfather wrote in his diary, I don't know if we should tell her that he's artistic. Oh, and that yes. was the code. Even in his own diary, he couldn't go further than that. But Somebody was artistic. That he knew. He, did he knew that the other one was musical. 
So if someone's described as musical, was mm. another. I mean, that's a different sort of cottage. We've talked about this before. That gents' toilets, which were used as acid, were always known as cottages. Partly because the architecture was consciously meant to be sort of slightly half timbered, Tudor little dwelling and things. But that became a verb. Mm. My favourite one. I remember the Lady Pearl fell on hard times and was obliged to seek national assistance, as used to be called. Supplementary benefit was on the dole. But Lady Pearl described it as living out the national handbag. Mm. And I always love that. This it's idea very of being lyrical, the actually, isn't it? And descriptive. It's and inventive clever. and yes. clever. Yes. And do you, where does the name come from, Polari? Do you know? Polari, I suppose it must come from some maybe Romany or Italian or kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. Would have come in perhaps through traveling players. Show people still use it. So um, the show people, which is a sort of subdivision of the GRT, Gypsy Roma Traveller community, they use a version of Polari or show talk, which is the same sort of thing. Famously, it became sort of not quite mainstream exactly, but in the 1960s, you might remember Round the Horn. Yes. Which was the hilarious radio comedy in which Hugh Paddock and Kenneth Williams played Julian and Sandy. And Julian and Sandy were obviously gay. But again, this was an era when that was not, it was still criminal. But Anyone must have guessed that that's who, because they used to go, oh, boner. My favourite one was they did one where they went to sea and Barry Tooke sort of played the straight man to this and uh, they said that one of them had fallen off the ship. And he said, oh, did you drag yourself up on deck? And he went, no, I wore casual. <laughs> <laughs> so I think people kind of knew. I remember talking to a friend of mine who listened to it with her very straight conventional parents in the 1960s. I was saying, you must have known that this was about gay men being gay men. She said, no, no, I just knew it was funny. It's, it's true, why. though, isn't it? And this is an era where Liberace could successfully sue for being called homosexual. Exactly, I mean. perish the thought. <laughs> but it, the interesting thing happened was, in fact, it, it, Polari sort of died because of gay liberation. Because in the 1960s and the 70s, when all of a sudden gay people decided they didn't, they were going to challenge this negative evaluation in the world, they no longer needed that language. Mm. So they kind of lost that language. And it became actually very unpopular for a while. People think that it belonged to a past that was a past that was about living in an unjust dispensation. Yeah. Really. yeah, exactly. Yeah. The language of oppression. Nobody yes. wanted to use it. Yeah. And then just kind of people got a bit interested in it. Morrissey, one of the most fascinating creatures of the 1980s, 90s, Piccadilly Polari, if you remember. In fact, I partly advised on that album, mm. remembering the Lady Pearl and the Lady Pearl's fragrant and exciting expressions. Oh, get your one of Shaffy some Vogue's going up Shaffy some Vogue. Get your moles out. Oh, var the lallies on that bow. Do you, do you ever use it now, Richard? No, you never hear it now. No. And I think most, there was a drag queen called Laurie Lee who was the la one of the last speakers of Polari, as I recall, called Laurie Lee because Laurie Lee had been in the merch was known as Lorelei because she lured sailors to their doom. Oh, yeah. And so Lorelei became sort of domesticated as Laurie Lee. Brilliant. I did a bit where I was a chaplain to the Showman's Guild. And I remember asking a chat. We had an annual dinner there. They were just great, lovely, lovely people. And I said, do you still, do you still use any of that language? Or he said, no, no, it's dying out now. Aww. Yeah, has it been preserved and recorded? Is there, it was saying it's dying out and it's quite reason, but has it been studied so that yeah. it's preserved for the future? Yeah, there's a couple of books, um, very good books actually, about it. There were only ever a very small vocabulary. I remember the guy who did the research said that there were 20 or so words that everybody knew. Mm. But then once you got beyond those 20 words, they were very specific to a particular mm group of people or set of friends perhaps so to claim it as a language i think is to make too great a claim mm -hmm. for it mm -hmm. but it's it was funny and clever and 
there was something quite weaponized about it too. And the thing I, I like about it was that often people would make light of a situation that was actually probably really hard, lives that were really very difficult and dangerous sometimes. And there's a sort of lightness of touch about it that I mm. enjoy. Because you're my favorite fact. Yes. yes. Well, Cambridge, 2017. Ernest Pius Anglican Ordinance at Westcott House, which is one of the theological colleges of the Church of England, decided in an effort of inclusion towards the LGBTQIA plus community, <laughs> perhaps ill-advisedly, to offer a Eucharist in Pride Week in Polari. <laughs> so they did, they put it on and they published an order of service. The only thing I remember about the order, I didn't go to it, I'd love to have gone to it. The only thing I remember about the order of service was that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian formula, became Auntie Chaviomi in the Fantabulosa Fairy. It didn't go down <laughs> too well. It caused the most the enormous... The Fairy is brilliant. The Holy Spirit of Fantabulosa <laughs> yes. Fairy. Fantastic. It caused... And God as Auntie, I think, is yes, so sweet. Good. It went down very, very poorly indeed. And the principal of Westcott House had to make a very fulsome apology, which I think was a, a bit of a shame, really, because I think theological colleges should, yeah. should be places where that sort of experimentation is not only allowed, but in fact... Encouraged, but I don't really see Arthur the Chaviomi and the Fantabulosa Fairy <laughs> catching on anytime soon. <laughs> Kalari. Brilliant. Love it. I love that fact. Thank you. That's a, a new one for me, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think that leads me to wrap it all up with my topic this week, which yes. is mummification, mm -hmm. which is one of my favourites, I have to say. One of the things that really got me into archaeology, actually, as a child, was just this sort of obsession with preserving dead bodies for the afterlife. And it's sort of easy to think that the Egyptians especially were obsessed with death, but actually it's, it's really that they were obsessed with life mm. and the afterlife and wanting that to continue because in ancient Egypt, ancient Egypt was pretty much seen as the center of the universe. It was the most perfect place ever to have existed. And the afterlife was just one step even better than that. And what was really important was that you had to have your physical body and that had to remain. You had to have it complete as well. So there's all these different parts of your character and uh, your spirit and all of that. But the body was really essential. They wouldn't just survive without you. So that was sort of the key. But this is really one of the main places that we know about. It's not the only place and not even the earliest place where deliberate mummification has been carried out. And it's lots of accidental mummification as well. It's really just any 
burial conditions where you have things that stop the natural decay of the body. So it can be things like waterlogged circumstances, dry, desiccated, clay, bogs. So bog bodies, again, will be preserved really, really well. Anything that sort of stops the oxygen from getting in there. But what we think, what we've, we've thought for a long time is that in ancient Egypt, this really starts with natural burial in the sand and that desiccates it, it dries out the body and the skin completely so these earliest pre-dynastic burials were just essentially dug into pits in the sand and it's thought that perhaps people just did that and then later on came across them wild animals had not cover them or whatever and they realized that they were pretty much perfectly preserved and from that point on it sort of started What's quite interesting is that we've got obviously so many thousands and thousands of these mummies. We don't have that many contemporary descriptions of the process itself. So we've we've had to sort of patch it together from looking at later records and also just studying the mummies. But there are some really interesting descriptions. Herodotus writes about it. So he's quite a lot later than some of the earliest ones. But looking at the, the bodies themselves and the mummies, it sort of matches up with what he writes about. So he actually describes three different methods of mummification. So it depends a bit where you were, um, what social status you had. So there were sort of, there was the ideal that would be the, the wealthy people and the pharaohs, medium and then the sort of low, low key people. And the main process, which essentially just desiccates and preserves the body, you start with having to take away pretty much everything that's inside because yeah. everything, that's what really speeds up the process. So any of your internal organs and your guts and all of that, that's the bacteria. So you take all of everything out. The brain is removed. Mm. Now, how? How? Okay. So the brain is removed. You want to keep the skull and the head and the face as complete as possible. So you use a hook, a metal hook through the nostril. Shut up. So that goes to sort of pick out the what brain. Bits? Just bits, bits at a time. All the bits, just hook them out. You couldn't. <laughs> Little bits and pieces. Because interestingly, all the other parts, so internal organs, heart is the key. Brain doesn't really matter. The Egyptians didn't really believe that the brain did anything. Right. Everything to do with your person was in your heart. So the heart oh, is what's so important. So the brain, you just sort of hike it out really abdomen the next step is you have a flint knife and you open a sort of little slit in the flank take away the contents you wash the cavity with palm wine and an infusion of ground spices oh, so what happened to all the bits they were just were they buried so, or? no so you take those and you look after them and you sort of preserve those yes um at one point uh, later on you develop what's called these uh, jars special jars for the internal organs awful jars <laughs> basically <laughs> canopic jars as they yeah. called, um that preserve them and other things get wrapped up so the heart is put back in again the cavity is filled with myrrh and nicely smelling things. Phew. Later on, they also use sawdust and things to pack it so the yeah. body looks normal. Sew it back up again. You then leave the body in natron, which is like a, a type of salt for 70 days. And that's what desiccates the whole thing. Oh, and yeah. finally, you wash it and then wrap it. After that, there's the sort of everything else that goes with it, the coffin and all of that. But that's a sort of key mm. process. If you are a little bit less wealthy, there's a, a different method, which is less elaborate, but quite interesting. So there's no incisions to the body, so you don't take anything out. Instead, you use what's described as oil of cedar, possibly also turpentine, inserted into the body, having made no incision. So it's mm. inserted through the access. anus, yes, yeah. which is then plugged. Because you then leave the body again in nature to desiccate it for 70 days. 
After which you take the plug out again and everything is dissolved inside. Oh, yes. And it just pours out. It comes out again. Goodness and God. so you literally just have the skin and bone left. I've actually felt the heart of one of my ancestors, which was mummified. Uh, we have some tombs in the local church. And one of my ancestors was killed at the Battle of Newbury, one of the Civil War battles in 1643. And he had his guts buried pretty much where he fell. He was taken out by a cannonball to the groin. So I hope it was a quick death, but Mm. probably not. And then his heart was embalmed and kept in a box, which I opened. I didn't know what it was. And then his body was buried at the house he came from. So it turned out the heart. It was very hard, you know, I mean, yeah. Do you know what they did for the? No, almost like a, a large musket ball type thing. You know, it was not as heavy, but it was heavier than you'd have thought. We have one in the Crusader Heart in a church at Woodford in Northamptonshire in the Nen, in the Nen Valley. Amazing. Well, it's called a Crusader's Heart, but it's a mummified heart in a pillar behind glass. And again, it looks like a sort of pickled walnut. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. I suppose it just goes right there, sort of withers away and then like, becomes hard. Yes. Can you know why they're called mummies? I do know why they're called mummies, actually. The word is actually derived from Persian and Arabic words oh. for wax and bitumen because bitumen which is a black resin type substance it was thought when the first arabs came across egyptian mummies they thought that the black color of of that skin of those mummies was caused by them being covered in bitumen so they called them the mumia word the persian word for bitumen and that became so so it's actually a mistake Yeah, this was the, the, so the mummies. I didn't know. It's a very good question. Yeah. So it's a, a completely different thing. I was terrified of mummies when I was <laughs> when I when I was what I wanted to do was see horror films because I just like yeah. I reckon the mummy was the one that frightened me more than anything. Scooby Doo, they were quite often in Scooby Doo. Yeah, they? The unraveling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's the thing about it's that M R James thing. Is it the face of crumpled linen? There's something about the blankness. Yes. Of yes. the form that's so frightening, isn't it? Interesting. Over time, and especially the the sort of pinnacle really of mummification in Egypt was in the 11th century BC, the 21st dynasty. They were really trying to make them lifelike. And so they were using linen and things to make eyes. Although some Ramesses IV actually had little onions as substitutes for his eyes. <laughs> and um, eventually they were using you know, much more uh, elaborate things. Body was stuffed with linen or sawdust. Finger and toenails were tied up with string to make sure they wouldn't come off. And genitalia were also tied to the thigh so that they wouldn't fall off during the process as well. Because An ambitious take. you wanted this perfect body and actually they realized that why not make it even more perfect as you're going into the afterworld which is going to be even better so your life could be even better than the brilliant life you had in ancient egypt you can make yourself i remember you saying in a previous episode about putting someone's toe back didn't they yes so So that's a missing part would be put together sometimes that was clearly accidental as well and you can see that there's sort of probably something's gone a bit wrong and they (laughs) stick something back on lego (laughs) Um, exactly so there's a lot of varieties oh lost his hand (laughs) (laughs) and they also mummify pets so animals are very very widely mummified sacred animals as well so we have lots of large animals including bulls and apparently it's been able to show that the turpentine or juniper oil method was used for mummifying oxen as well sacred oxen and some are food mummies so they're not pets but they're used for food and they're actually 
prepared joints of meat, a bit like in a supermarket package, oh, prepared so that they're ready to cook and then wrapped up in, in linen and left for the afterworld. And of course, once sealed in the tomb, well, then the departed went on to live their life in the afterworld. And the fact that it just sat there doing nothing yeah. was known only to tomb robbers, I guess. And then uh, archaeologists, people like you came along. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And actually the tomb robbing and the, the sort of theft is a really interesting one because that was obviously because a lot of them were buried with a lot of wealth. But also that became really common because of the belief that these mummies had medicinal powers. So already uh, in the 12th century, we had uh, some Arab scientists recording that mumal mummies from mountains actually in Persia could cure diseases. And all the way from the classical period, we have other people, again, writing that these mummies were really powerful, that they could cure you of all sorts of things. So in the 19th century, the king of Persia actually sent a small part of a ground up mummy to Queen Victoria for her health. Did she try it? Presume no, not, well, who no. knows? I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> but even in um, Shakespeare wrote about it. So in the Romeo and Juliet, the apothecary has a stocks mummy. Really? Just in case it was... I mean, roaring trade in counterfeit mummy, I guess, wouldn't it? Because no one's going to know. Yes, yeah, want, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of them were animal mummies as well. So they were sold as, as human mummies. Do you know about the Buccanites? The Buccanites? No, I don't. A mad sect in Scotland in the 18th century. And they were, their foundress was a Mrs. Buchan. And they thought that she was immortal. And then unfortunately, she gave all the appearance of dying. But of course, they thought she might just be sleeping and that her immortality would soon assert itself. They kept her in a chest upstairs. And she kind of self-mummified, really. But they were so convinced that this was going to happen, they would all be saved in the rapture, that they had a unique hairstyle with just one tuft of hair on their head because they wanted <laughs> Jesus to have something to hold on to, oh. to pull them up when the rapture came. <laughs> Didn't work out, unfortunately, no. and the Buccanites died out. Presumably an unlocked chest so she could pop out when she was ready. I don't know if they had a, I don't know, some system knocks or something. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> Brilliant, love that. So do you want to know my favourite yes. fact? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not directly the mummification itself, but in this whole sort of scene where you got the body for the afterlife and you want this perfect afterlife, but also you want to have a great time. So you don't want to work or do anything. So they start having servants buried with them, but they're not real servants. They are little figures called Shabtis. And the Shabti is essentially your stand-in for the afterlife. So when the call comes in for you to do anything, because there might be duties, you might have to help build a pyramid or plow the fields or something. When that call comes for you, your Shabti will stand up and say, here I am. And that's great. And they start with just the one. But after a while, they realize, well, you know, there could be a lot of work. So they start having, you know, a number of them. And eventually some have, you know, huge big sets with overseers or supervisors of charities as well. So there's this whole kind of, you have you and your body and then you've got someone to do all the work for you. Toy servants. Think it's, yeah, especially little pretend ones. One of the sort of persistent myths of mummy horror films is that servants, favoured servants, officials of that particular pharaoh or high-ranking official get walled up alive. But mm. is there any evidence for that? I don't think so, no. I think mm. that's very much there. That's horror, horror film, movie. yeah. Would you be mummified if you were given the option? Well, now so I know what's happening to me. So I'm going to be buried in vestments, which is the custom yeah. for a priest. Yes. So um, I so can tell really. you what I'm going to be wearing. So definitely not mummified. I mean, I'm not against it. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think it's probably... It's not about you, Charles. 
I don't care. I mean, I think, I think once I, I'm sorry, I, when, when I'm done, I'm done, I sure, think. Sure, so. don't yeah. apologize. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but do, would you go into the family tombs? And would you I don't mind home? that. Yeah, ashes? so they're all there from 1522 onwards. I don't mind if I'm ashes or complete. I want to be saved with a little plaque saying that they have my permission in about 300 years to study my body and research yes, it. Yes, yes. So oh, to mummify in well, the interest maybe of not mummify, but at least being buried. And Kat, in your living will, you'll leave that you mustn't clean your teeth for the last week so they can go into the plaque. Yes. Oh, of course. So so if I'm sort of kept alive on sort of machines yeah. and things for a year, I've yeah. got to just They can my, find the plaque. Yeah. But what was if it, someone like Samuel Pepys leading in to kiss you when you've been dead for two so strange. Years. That is such a weird thing. With Isn't that, that weird? did he, well, was he one of many who did that or did he just take a, a lunge? There's a story I can tell you about an intruder in the crypt of a church where I used to be vicar, which I will not share with the listeners, Charles, but I can tell you <laughs> that Samuel Pepys' behaviour, and indeed behaviour of a more advanced kind, is not unknown. How extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it at that, maybe. For yeah, it's podcast. not one for them. Yeah. <laughs> Even the disembodied voice looks horrified by that, and he's got nerves <laughs> of steel. <laughs> so, that brings us to the end, and we've got our favourite part of it, where our disembodied voice gets to decide who won this week? So, what's the decision? It's very difficult this week because I wanted to say his lallies look like darts, but his Polari was fantabulosa and it was a boner day for Richard. But Cat was so good that it's <gasps> ramification. That's, isn't that two wins in a row? It is two wins in a row. That's amazing. I mean, to be fair, I've been interested in this since I was 11. I, so what got you interested in mummies, though? I don't know. It's just so fascinating. Just this idea that you go to this elaborate length for it's something so you didn't even know out, was going it? to yeah. happen. It was Tutankhamun because I was a kid when Tutankhamun, that block, yes. first blockbuster exhibition. Do you remember yeah. Charles yeah. going to Britain? And I just got fascinated by ancient Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. And by this extraordinary find. So before we go, let's discuss our topics for next week. Richard, you are going to be looking into hypnotism. I am. Charles, your topic is fairies. How wonderful. And I will be researching fermented foods. Ooh. There we go. So that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people to find us when they're searching for something new to listen to. You can also send us an email if you like, and we've really loved uh, reading the ones that have come in already, and that's the best place if you want to suggest another topic rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com You can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, some go this way, some go that way. That's for me, myself, personally, I prefer the shortcut. Goodbye. Good. Bye. Bye. <laughs>